Acts. If you've got your Bibles this morning, turn with me, and we're going to be in the book of Acts. We're continuing our series on unpopular this morning, talking about the unpopular family of faith. The church family sometimes not uh, so popular, and I can actually see my Bible much better this morning. Some of you have made a, uh, comments about my glasses. Uh, the, the, the reading specs didn't work out so well, and so these are a progressive lens, which means as I told the band a little bit earlier, I can see my Bible better, I can see you better, but I have not a lot of peripheral vision. And so I could fall off the stage in the midst of seeing you better and my Bible better. And so I remember there was a preacher that as he opened the text like we just did, that uh, he was nervous, he was young, it was his first sermon, and he, he made this statement at the beginning. He, he said, today I am coming to you from, and, and he forgot where he was in the Bible and so he used a dramatic pause there. He stepped a little bit further back, came toward the pulpit, said, I'm coming to you today from, and he forgot where his text was again. And, and so he backed up one more time and tried to make it more dramatic like it was intentional and said, I'm coming to you today from, and he hit the podium, and he and the podium fell right off the stage into the front row. And he looked up at this older lady whose lap he was now in, and he said, ma'am, I want you to know I am so sorry. And she goes, no, son, it's my fault. You told me three times you were coming. And so, so if I fall off the stage, that don't look at it as, a, as, as me being slain in the spirit, Tom. Just help me up, and we'll be in, in good shape, right? Uh, but if you found your place there, Acts chapter 2, famous passage beginning, uh, we'll go back to verse 40 and go to the end of the chapter. And it says, and with many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the example of this early church. Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage of Scripture today, We'll understand that even though the church may not be so popular in the world or with the world today, it is your bride, it is your body, and it's been called to come alongside the family, two institutions, Lord, that you established, the home and the church, to bring up a, a generation of disciples who will change their world and, and turn their world upside down with the gospel. Empower us to do so, we pray today in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. A columnist named uh, Gregory Elder tells the story about when he was a kid. He said he was growing up on the coast, and he would go out to the beach, and he would build sandcastles like some of you will do or have done this summer. And he said he would go out, and he would build sandcastles on the beach. And where his family spent their time on the beach in the summers, he said that there were some bullies that lived in, in some homes nearby, and they would come and, and run up and down the beach. And every time he would build these castles in these, these cities that he would get so excited about, these bullies would come, and, man, they would just act like they didn't see it, and they would just kick everything. He said that as hard as they could, they're kicking these sand castles over and kicking his city down. And, and uh, every time he thought he had done something beautiful, they would just destroy it. So one day he decided he would get wise, and he went and he found some cinder blocks, and he found some big rocks, and he built his sand castles over and upon those cinder blocks and those big rocks. And he said, so he watched from a distance as he hit himself. And sure enough, those bullies came down through there. And once again, they started kicking the sand castles. And every one of them ended up with bruised and bleeding toes as they walked away, just swearing they were going to get even with whoever did that. And, and 
Gregory uh, Elder tells this, he tells this story, he says he's reminded of how many people try to belittle the church and the role of the church and the church's popularity and place in the world today. And he said they kick at it, but they don't realize the church may look like on the outside in many places that it's crumbling and that it's fragile. He said what they don't realize is on the inside, it's built on a foundation. Jesus said on this rock, speaking of the confession of Peter, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, as we've looked at this series, Unpopular, we saw that the first key to radical discipleship related to the provision summit, as we talk about our seven summits here that we've embraced as a kind of a discipleship strategy at Trinity. The, the first summit, the provision summit, we said it starts at home. So we looked at Joshua, who said, we may have an unpopular home, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so the provision summit has to do with providing an environment at our home and even in our church community where God is loved above all else. We looked at the Shema in uh, Genesis chapter 6, where we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, create that environment of love in the home, and that the Word of God be exalted in the home and placed before our kids and our grandkids constantly. And then we saw last week that our second summit, it continues what we call the presentation summit. And that's once we've established that environment where God is loved and the love of God is made manifest, that we communicate clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we looked at Noah as our example because he was able to not only escape the disaster to come, but he was able to get his wife and his sons and his sons' wives. So the importance of us communicating the gospel so that our children and our grandchildren are in Christ. We've got to make that a priority. And all of this is cumulative, meaning everything builds on what we've already learned as we come to that third summit today, the preparation summit. Salvation, we have to understand, isn't the end. Salvation is only the beginning. And sometimes it's in those tween years, those difficult years of maybe fifth and sixth grade that kids begin to grasp and understand the abstracts of the faith. And they understand that, listen, my salvation has to go beyond the, the simplicity of the gospel. And listen, we, we come to faith in Christ through the simple gospel. And we then grow in that and we begin to understand as we get older, we never exhaust our learning in these areas, that there are things that have to be added to our faith, as the Scriptures say. Again, salvation's not the end, it's only the beginning. We begin to understand that there's a spiritual life. There are spiritual disciplines. These early believers here in Acts chapter 2 are being reminded, and those who would receive the book of Acts and, and read it there in the first century would also be reminded that they've received a couple of precious gifts and we're going to talk about those gifts this morning. We, they received a salvation that would distinguish them, and they received a strategy that would develop them. And so I want us to look at those two gifts and begin to see that they are keys in our life as far as what do we do next after we're saved. First of all, you have received, just like those early believers, a salvation when you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You have received a salvation to distinguish you. By the way, being different... <laughs> isn't going to necessarily make you popular. It's amazing how people uh, want to be loved and, and want to be 
embraced by everybody in the world. They try at the same time to be different, and being different doesn't always make you liked. We've said it throughout this series, but our goal is not to be liked by this world. Our goal is to what? Be like Jesus. And so we've received this salvation. Let's look at what he was preaching here. Let's go back to verse 40, where we started a moment ago with many other words. Now, he had preached a clear gospel, and he had confronted those people who were gathering there in Jerusalem. And it says, with many other words, he testified And he strongly urged them in his preaching, saying, be saved. Some translations say, be rescued. You were saved out of something. Paul would later refer to that as being saved or rescued out of darkness and placed into his glorious light. Saved from sin and self and placed in Christ. You've been rescued And so he says, be saved or rescued from this corrupt generation. You will no longer be a part, from the moment you got saved, you will no longer be a part of the corrupt generation that you were once a part of. And so the gospel was a gospel that not only saved us from our sins, but separated us and led us into a process that we call sanctification, where we're being separated, delivered from, rescued from the powers of and the sins of this world being made more like Jesus, no longer a part of it. And in verse 41, it says, so those who accepted, the NLT says, those who believed his message were baptized. Again, baptism means you've embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. And though baptism doesn't save you, it pictures, it, it pictures your salvation publicly, but it also publicly identifies you with Christ and his church. That's why the word baptism is used, I believe, in the New Testament. The the word in Koine Greek, the Greek of the common people in first century there, the word baptizo, we we just kind of stole it right out of the Greek language, it, it means to immerse. There's a different word that's used, by the way, where it talks about the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so it's not a picture, baptism is not a picture of the sprinkling of Christ's blood. It is a picture of being immersed in Christ and buried with him in his death and raised to walk in newness of life. And so if you wonder why we practice baptism by immersion, we do it because it pictures the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, identifying you with the Lord Jesus and with his church. And while it doesn't save you, it is that first step of a believer to publicly identify himself with Christ, picturing you in Christ and identifying you with his church as well. And so this is all a new direction for these disciples. They're learning something that Jesus had said all the way back. Jeff mentioned the Sermon on the Mount a moment ago, but all the way back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explained, listen, wide is the road and the gate that leads to destruction, and many are on that road. Many are going to go through that gate that leads to destruction. He goes, but narrow is the path, difficult is the way, narrow is the gate that leads to what? Life. And he says, few there are that find it. So one thing these early believers were discovering that any of you that are serious about your relationship with Jesus Christ have discovered is this. You're swimming upstream. You're going against the flow. 
I would like to think that in rural northeast Georgia right here in the Bible Belt, that that's not the case, but do you realize about 80% of Madison County will not step foot in a church today? That astounds me. That tells me we've got our work cut out for us, a lot of people to reach with the gospel of Christ. But it also tells me if that's the case here, then certainly where you work, where most of you go to school, where you live life, you are swimming upstream if you've been saved and rescued from this generation. You're different, and it's okay to be different. In fact, you should be concerned if you're not different. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All things are passing away. All things are becoming new. No change, no Jesus. No Jesus, no change. 1 Peter 2, 9, Peter reminded them, you are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're God's own peculiar people. And he's called you out of darkness. What? He's, he's transferred you into light. He, he wants you to declare the praises of the one who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And then in 1 Peter 4, 4, he says that the people that we used to run with are going to think it strange that we don't run with them anymore. And so I can go all the way back to when I was about 16 years old and I rededicated my life to Jesus Christ. And there were some other fellows that had recommitted their lives to Christ. And I looked up to people like Mr. Donnie here. And I remember uh, the, the musical Surrender that we traveled to Chicago and back singing and, and things like that. But I remember looking up to people like Donnie who had started a Bible study in the cafeteria at Madison County High School. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday we met and we opened our Bibles before class, before school had started right there in the cafeteria. And people thought we were strange. Those are those Jesus freaks going to the Bible study before class starts. Never forgot those days. Rededicated my life, and all of a sudden I became strange to people. Different. And sometimes it takes a little while. Sometimes we have to be patient with people as they grow. Some people that you see around you in the church, in the body of Christ, may not be as different as you would like them to be. But be patient because if Christ is real to them, you just keep encouraging them to love Jesus, to stay in his word, to be a part of his church because he will do the work. You can encourage it. You can't force it, but you pray for them and watch him change them from the inside out over time. I read about a man who bought a new house and in the house, in the backyard, it was like the middle of January, and he thought, man, there is one ugly tree. Everything else in the backyard looks pretty good, but there is one ugly tree back there, just the way it was kind of bent out of shape. He didn't like that tree so much, and he thought he was going to cut it down, and then before he could get to it, spring had gotten there, and the most beautiful pink blossoms were on that tree, and he thought, wow, man, that's a nice tree after all. It has sprung to life, and there are these beautiful blossoms. But then what happened in, in late spring, the winds came, and, and the blossoms all blew away. And he thought, well, now the tree's kind of plain, kind of ugly again. And when summer came, it had some kind of fruit growing on it. And so he went out there, and he bit into it, and it was bitter and he said, this is a bitter tree. I do need to cut it down, but he never got around to it. And by fall, it had the most beautiful, red, delicious apples that he had ever tasted on that tree. And he concluded that a lot of Christians are like that. At first, 
we might say they don't look like much, they really aren't fruitful, they really, they really don't seem like they're contributing much early in their faith, but their roots are being established and we don't see what's going on. And then over time, they might have some, some emotional highs in their spiritual journey and we say, man, they are beautiful and they're on fire for God, but then the storms come and, and the blooms kind of blow away and we might think they're just not quite as pretty as they used to be in their faith. And their fruit, as it begins to come on at first, it's not quite what we hoped it would be, but give it time. And they begin to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior and produce a beautiful fruit in their life. And so it requires patience and it requires nourishment. And we begin to see in our own lives, we're changing. We see in our brothers and sisters in Christ, they're changing. Your language changes. Your priorities changes, uh, change. Your want-tos change. One girl, as she was joining a church and the pastor asked her about her salvation as a teenage girl, she, he said, so you've repented it from sin and self and, and, and trust Jesus? And she goes, yeah, I still struggle with certain sins. And he said, really? Well, tell me about it. She goes, well, here's the difference. She goes, before I got saved, I would run to sin. And now my struggle is that I'm running from sin. And so that changes over time, your desires, your direction in life, your purpose is now to glorify God. You're pursuing purity and, and modesty and holiness and a walk with Jesus Christ. It's become the priority in your life. And you realize that you're different because now your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. First uh, Corinthians six nineteen. do you not know that you were bought with a price? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. Therefore, we're to glorify God. So even our bodies become a temple of the Spirit of God as we seek to live for him. And so we've received this gift, and, and we've been saved or rescued in a way that makes us different. We have this salvation that distinguishes us. And so if people can't tell that you're different, you have to go back and, and check and say, well, have I truly, honestly been born again to where it's made a difference in my life? But then secondly, I want you to see that we have not only received the salvation, because that kind of overlaps with all that we've talked about in the first two summits, but we've also received a strategy, a strategy to develop us. Now, there's, as you look at verses 42 through 47, there's a little bit of an interpretive challenge, as with all of the book of Acts. We have to try to discern when we read in Acts, is what I'm reading descriptive or is it normative? A little hermeneutics class right now, but when you, when you study the book of Acts, that which is descriptive is saying, look, this is what happened one time, and isn't it great that God did this? But there are passages in Acts that we discover that are normative. In other words, when it was written, it meant to describe a pattern that the church was to embrace and see this happening again and again and again. And I believe this is a passage that might have described what was happening, but it was to become normative. Why do I believe that? Because Jesus, in the Great Commission, had already said, this is what you're going to go forth and be about. This is what you're going to do. And later, the epistles, the letters that we read after the book of Acts, reiterate that this is what the church was to continue being about. This just happened to be the first time, the first church. And so it sets a model for us that salvation is just the beginning, and then as a result of that new birth that we're growing, and we see a strategy laid out before us that helps us to be prepared to be disciples in this world. Notice that it starts with evangelism, the 
sharing of the gospel clearly. That overlaps again with everything we've already discussed. Evangelism, sharing the gospel clearly. The context, Peter was preaching to them and testifying to them concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. And people needed to be saved from this wicked and perverse generation. You go down to verse, well, you begin by seeing in verse 41 that 3,000 people were added to them at one moment, one great crusade. Man, that's awesome, but it didn't end there. When you go down to verse 47, it says the Lord added to them daily, every day, those who were being saved. In other words, when they experienced salvation for themselves, one thing that made them different in this world is that they went forth to tell others what they had received. Hey, I've been saved. I've received a salvation that distinguishes me. I've been rescued from sin and self. And they have to articulate that gospel and go and tell others how they can be saved. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, you need to desire to be a reproducing disciple, reproducing the faith that God has placed in you and the lives of others that he's placed in your life. Salvation is not separate or exclusive from discipleship. It is a part of the discipleship process. And so we move from evangelism, where a lot of times, for many years, many of us who grew up in rural Baptist churches, that was the stopping point. Man, we just need to get people saved, and everything will take care of itself. And then we wondered why two weeks and two months later, all those people that were saved and baptized weren't still in the church. And and we would add up our baptism numbers and, and look at our attendance, and it just didn't quite add up. Churches were baptizing 1,000 people and still running 100 because they stopped with evangelism. And we're to move, secondly, to education, teaching the Bible thoroughly. Teaching the Bible thoroughly. Now, this was, again, commanded by Jesus when he was giving the Great Commission. It wasn't just to go make converts and do evangelism. He says, go and make disciples. Specifically, he said, teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded you, everything I've taught you, you go and teach others. Paul would later tell Timothy the same thing. Look, man, everything I've taught you, you find some faithful men, and you go and teach them so that they may teach others also. And so it was part of, in verse 42, the apostles' teaching. They they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the teaching of the Word of God as the Word of God was being presented to the body of Christ. A shallow faith will not be a staying faith. A shallow faith will not be a staying faith. Or as my mentor Bill Bennett used to say, a faith that fizzles before the finish is a faith that had a fatal flaw from the first. And so, how about that for an alliteration? I mean, he he was the king of that, right? Emotion will only carry you so far. Proverbs 19, 2 says, enthusiasm without knowledge is of no use, is of no good. And so we need to grow in our understanding of God's character, God's nature, God's will, God's purposes, and God's expectations for our lives. All that we have that God is revealing to us in his word, we need to be schooled in those things if we're going to be a successful Christian. If someone is going to be an engineer, I expect them to study math for a long time. If somebody's going to be a doctor, I expect them to study medicine for a long time. But if we're going to be successful in the things of God and the things of the faith, we need to be educated in the Word of God consistently. 
Now, I realize this, and because many times we've been guilty, it's possible to be as straight as a gun barrel theologically and as empty as one spiritually. There's no doubt about it. But it's equally as possible to be explosive as a powder keg spiritually and as misguided theologically. And so we need both. We need to to know him in spirit and in truth and dig deeper in the word of God and understand how God is teaching and guiding and leading us as we get to know him better, his character, nature, his will for our life, his expectations for us, and how we live out this faith. And so evangelism has to move to education. But education, a big part of that is our engagement, building the community among the church, building a community of faith within the church and within the body of Christ. And and so there are a lot of verses given to this here as we continue to read in this passage. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to koinonia, that that, that intimate family-type relationship that the church is supposed to have with one another, to the breaking of bread, breaking of the bread, where they're referring to the Lord's table and partaking of the Lord's supper or their agape feast. They were fellowshipping around meals together. One lady who joined our church one time from a different church in a more metropolitan area, she goes, you guys eat all the time. And my response was, actually, well, we probably do eat more than most, but I said, actually, we, we typically eat three meals a day like everybody else, but we just like to do that together as much as we can. We like to get together and, 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 and fellowship and encourage one another. And then to prayer so that we're praying for one another. The, the part of being an intimate member of a fellowship is that we're praying for one another. And so many times I missed how important the prayer and the fellowship aspect was. If I heard about a life group when I was early in, in, in a, the, my pastor, when I was a young pastor, and if I heard about a life group or a Sunday school class that didn't have time to cover their lesson because they spent time praying for one another and fellowshipping together, I would let it bother me. And then I understood better in the Scriptures, if that happens, they're actually living out the faith that we've already embraced. And so sometimes you need to have those moments to where, you know what, we've studied the Scriptures together, but now we we need to pray for one another, encourage one another, fellowship, share, interact with one another. It says that all the believers in verse 44 were together. They had everything in common, that unity there. They sold their possessions and their property and distributed to the needs or distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had need. Man, they, now they're beginning to look out for one another and take care of one another. That's another reason that you need to get involved in a small group within a church, in a life group. When you get plugged into those small groups, those life groups, you get to know a small group of people, and, and you have people that get to know you and become your brother, your sister in Christ in such a way that you're, they're, they're kinda, they know where you're at in life, they know what you need, and they're looking out for you. And so they're taking care of one another, looking out for one another. Fellowship, prayers, ministry, all this is taking place as they're engaged. Prayer was a huge part of it as you kind of read the rest of the book of Acts. One of the major themes is every time they prayed, it seemed like God did something new. God set somebody free. God restored somebody. God brought somebody to Jesus and they spoke the word of God with boldness as a result of the spirit of God coming upon them. All seemed to be an overflow of prayer throughout the book of Acts as they got together with brothers and sisters in Christ and prayed together, part of being engaged in the body of Christ. 
It's a community life, a community of faith, a family of faith, a fellowship, men and women, boys and girls, students. When we come together and we, we build unity. I'll never forget when I was a student pastor one day. We used to do this thing on Sunday nights after church called Destination Unknown. In other words, the kids didn't know where they were going after church. And, and they would be told, all right, this is going to be a free night, or you're going to need $3 or $5 or $10 this particular night, or we're going to go swimming this night. Yeah, maybe we wouldn't tell them, or maybe we'd bring your swimsuit. They kind of, kind of gave it away, right? But, but we would, it would be Destination Unknown. They wouldn't know where they were going. And one night after church, they were, the students were arguing about what they wanted to do. And they were having a disagreement about where they wanted to go and what they wanted to do. And I just stopped them. I said, guys, haven't you figured out by now that it's not about where we go or what we do. It's about that we're trying to spend some time together and get to know each other better and, and build a community of faith so that when you guys get to school that you stand together and that you witness together and that you've got each other's back because you've built this community of faith among yourselves. It has nothing to do with where we're going. It has to do with the fact that we're putting you on a van and building relationships so that you fall more in love with God and each other. Engagement. And finally exaltation. In the midst of all this, God was getting all of, the, all of the glory. In verse 47, they were praising God. This was overflow of, of the gladness and simple hearts that they had, but they were praising God for all that God was doing. You know, in Psalm 103, which I believe that y'all have been making a theme at Count Maranatha this summer, and Tina's been preparing messages for girls on that for this coming week, it just starts off with an overflow of worship where it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And I believe these early disciples were saying and singing that psalm together. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. You know, he's forgiven my sins. He's healed my diseases. He's redeemed my life from destruction. He's crowned me with loving kindness and tender mercies. He's renewing my strength like the eagles. Man. So much to praise God for. Psalm 100. Come into his presence with thanksgiving in your hearts. Come into his courts with praise. Know that the Lord is good. Bless his name. I believe they were just singing their praises to God. And in Hebrews 10, 25, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing when you are not engaged in the community of faith and praising God in that context, you become like that coal that got away from the fire, you know? You're cooking out and you've got your charcoal in a pile, but that one coal gets away from the fire and it just never quite gets as hot as it should. And some of you lose your fire, you lose your passion, and you say, well, listen, it's not all about church membership, and it's not. Boy, that's a huge part of it because it's the body of Christ working alongside the family that's all about the work of evangelism, education, engagement in a community of faith, and exalting our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in all that we do. I want to be a part of something like that. I want to see God continue to help us as a church to, yeah, see people saved, and see people coming to faith in Christ, that's what it's all about. But to see that as the beginning, as we work through these seven summits and establish fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ who know what they believe and why they believe it and how to defend it and are making a difference 
in this world because God has made them different and made a difference in their lives. Would you bow your heads with me?